Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Erin Kolb, a family nurse practitioner in allergy and immunology in Western Massachusetts who specializes in mast cell diseases. Erin, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So Erin, let's talk mast cell. First, let's go big picture. Let's talk about mast cells and mast cell diseases, and then we can talk more specifically about systemic mastocytosis and other associated conditions. Okay, thank you. Um, first off, I like to say that mast cells are a type of white blood cell in our bodies that are in all of our tissues. And typically we think of them with allergic conditions or like regular allergies, dust mite allergy, tree pollen allergy, or when somebody gets hives um, and the big time mast cells are involved as anaphylaxis. Um, but so mast cell disease is when there's a problem there with the mast cells and there can be a couple different types of mast cell disease. There's primary mast cell disease where um, there is a mutation and the bone marrow puts out clonally mutated mast cells and they can clump up in different organs and cause a lot of problems. And systemic mastocytosis is that, uh, cutaneous mastocytosis where the mast cells clump up in the skin is another type of primary disorder. And then more recently, we've been recognizing type of mast cell disease that people can be born with. Um, it's called hereditary alpha-tryptosemia, and it's a mouthful, but what it means is that uh, people have an extra copy of a gene encoding for alpha-tryptase. And it's pretty common in that about 6% of the general population in North America has extra copies of the tryptase gene, but only about one third of those people uh, have symptomatic mast cell disease. And then we have the non-clonal and non-primary mast cell disease, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, which is usually secondary to other issues like regular um, IgE allergies or dust mite or a food allergy, a medication allergy, um, autoimmune conditions can kind of make those mast cells angry and be an underlying cause. Um, a lot of different things, even inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, so mast cell activation syndrome uh, can be more common. Um, and, and yeah, we have to use our tools to figure out what type of mast cell disease people have. Erin, is it fair to kind of say that mast cells are everybody has mast cells and that's how we react to any allergen, correct? Correct, mast cells and basophils and yes. So there is normal mast cell activation or typical mast cell activation in everybody or any inflammation really has some mast cell involvement too. And then these conditions we're gonna talk about briefly today are when this normal response is kind of heightened or enhanced? Yes. So. You mentioned some triggers like dust mites um, and food allergens. What are common triggers, or is that is that can be is that different for different people? 
Yes, you're right. It can be different for different people. And that is a hard part about diagnosing these illnesses, but, but stress is probably one of the biggest triggers. Um, foods and even food sensitivities. So, uh, and then alcohol uh, is a big trigger. And in fact, in Europe, they tend to think about who they're going to uh, look for systemic mastocytosis in if they have trouble drinking alcohol and feel sick afterwards. Um, uh, sudden changes in temperature or bee stings, venom anaphylaxis, um, and even fragrances, chemicals, and odors can trigger some people. Certain medications, some are more likely to trigger people such as um, anti-inflammatory drugs or certain antibiotics. Um, yeah, it's a lot of different triggers. And we, we often obviously think when you think of allergies or you mentioned uh, bee venom, um, you think of anaphylaxis, you think of hives. What are typical GI symptoms when you have and heightened mast cell response. I don't want to call it systemic mastocytosis, but I'm assuming they all have similar symptoms, whether it's systemic mastocytosis um, or mast cell activation. What are typical GI symptoms with those conditions? Yeah, and you are right. All of these disorders can appear similar, and it doesn't matter which underlying diagnosis you have. I mean, it does matter in the long run, but um, they can look the same. So yes, GI symptoms that are common to mast cell disease are pretty much all of them, like heartburn, reflux, nausea, vomiting, gas and bloating and distension, cramping, diarrhea. And somebody doesn't have to have all of those symptoms, but um, they, they can occur in people and GI tract is a very common area. So especially if you have GI symptoms at the same time as skin symptoms or airway problems or um, another organ system because it often occurs two organ systems or more at a time. That's interesting because yeah, you initially mentioned obviously a variety of non-specific GI complaints, but I guess for our listeners, if you're having GI complaints and another organ system, of course, it's a little more suspicious towards maybe mast cell disease. Is that fair? Yes, that is a good way to put it. Now, if a patient has mast cell activation syndrome, um, are there complications that you kind of need to warn your patients about from a GI standpoint? Obviously there's anaphylaxis and that can be life-threatening, but from a GI standpoint? Um, it's, I mean, the, from a GI standpoint, if somebody was having a lot of diarrhea or something, we worry about dehydration and and electrolyte imbalances. But um, I mean, the main thing, even anaphylaxis can present a severe abdominal cramping and diarrhea or vomiting along with, you know, lightheadedness. So I don't, um, it, the hard part is it's, it's many systems. So um, there, I don't know that there's too many specific things I recommend about GI for symptoms beyond what we just talked about. And I guess that's part of the challenge and that leads me to my next question for our listeners is, you know, we just talked, you've mentioned a variety of symptoms, both GI and non-GI. So, and you've mentioned that mast cell response is part of our innate human function. So how do we make the diagnosis of 
one systemic mastocytosis, which is rare, but even just mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah, when when somebody is suspecting that uh, their patient has a mast cell disease, one of the first things to do is to uh, look at um, the tryptase level in the blood. So tryptase is a mast cell product, and um, we look at the number of that tryptase in the blood. And the typical thing is uh, if it's 11.5 or higher, we consider systemic mastocytosis. Um, in systemic mastocytosis, it's typically even 20 or above. Um, but I mentioned that hereditary alpha-tryptosemia, the extra copy of the tryptase gene that some people can be born with, um, depending on how many copies somebody has, they they tend to be above 11 and or definitely above eight. Uh, that's a cutoff for looking for hereditary alpha-tryptosemia. Um, but then people can have systemic mastocytosis with low tryptase levels. So it gets tough. Um, there are other markers that we look at too. Um, we, we have urine markers. Uh, so we collect a 24 hour urine for uh, N-methyl histamine, prostaglandin F2, prostaglandin D2, leukotriene E4. These are mast cell metabolites. So if we find any of these elevated, then that points to mast cell activation, extra mast cell activation. Um, and then a lot of it too is for trying to diagnose this, looking at the person and taking a good history. So um, looking at the person, sometimes we will see the cutaneous mastocytosis or the urticaria pigmentosa, a certain type of rash that, especially in adults, indicates systemic mastocytosis. So these are spots that can be flat or raised, sometimes looks like a lot of, not freckles, but um, tannish spots or purplish or reddish, a lot of them, especially on the trunk uh, and the thighs. And when they are stroked or scratched, they can flare up and that's called the derrier sign. So that's a main uh, point to look for that that is a red flag for uh, systemic mastocytosis. And um, yeah, lots lots of stuff come into play with thinking about this. I'm not sure if I answered that fully. No, you did. So, I mean, I think for our, our listeners, both patients and providers, it seems like there, there are first-line blood tests, you know, like you mentioned, tryptase, um, then there's some urine tests, and those aren't perfect, but like with many conditions that are more challenging, you need to look at the patient as a whole, right? You have to get their clinical history, their physical exam, along with maybe some of these lab markers, you can start to come up with a diagnosis. So, Erin, uh, when you do have a patient that you are confident has, you know, mast cell activation syndrome or systemic mastocytosis, and you're thinking therapy, other than avoiding a trigger, you know, if you found, if it's bee venom or it's stress, you you found the trigger, other than avoiding that, are there other dietary or lifestyle modifications that you typically recommend as first line? Yeah, well, dietary recommendation for mast cell disease, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there on the internet. So uh, mainly as mast cell specialists, we say, we recommend whole foods, uh, not a lot of processed foods or artificial colors or flavors or preservatives. Um, and 
trying to eat, yes, in a healthy manner. Leftovers, more than 24 to 48 hours, can can increase the histamine level in food. So generally, if people are very symptomatic, they don't uh, tend to eat leftovers that are too many days old or we put it in the freezer and thaw it out when you're going to eat it. Um, there, the misinformation out there too is about the low histamine diet where there, there are real points to that. And that diet can help a lot of people. It's just, there are so many different versions of it out there. And some foods that are on that high histamine list often are safe foods for people with systemic mastocytosis or mast cell activation syndrome. So it really is where people need to figure out what diet feels best to them. And um, yeah, that can be tough sometimes, very tricky. But clearly individualize it. But in general, we always talk about avoiding processed foods, especially ultra processed foods for a variety of conditions. So I think this fits with that. Interesting. I've never had to tell people advice regarding leftovers. So that's a, that's a good one. I like that, you know? Yeah. But, but it really is, you know, if you don't think you're going to eat your food in the next 24 hours, then, you know, pop it in the freezer, then don't worry about it. There's a lot of extreme information or ideas out there online. And I don't think it's necessary to, to go that far. And I see so much anxiety around, food and that's understandable. Are there any pharmaceutical agents or integrative options that you have found helpful for your patients? Uh, Yes, for sure. Um, Some of the first line treatment are antihistamines. So um, again, since mast cells are involved in typical allergic reactions, antihistamines are a big go-to because histamine is a big product that causes a lot of itchiness and hives and and stuff. So um, regular over-the-counter antihistamines, and then um, antihistamines for the gut, like famotidine, um, cimetidine, uh, those can be very beneficial. And I often have patients where, you know, uh, proton pump inhibitors have not done enough for them. And yet when we give them more histamine blockers for the gut, they their symptoms go away or their reflux is magically better. So that's really interesting to see um, points to mast cell activation sometimes. And, And then we've got, based on what mast cells can put out when they are kind of angry there, uh, leukotriene. So there's leukotriene receptor blockers like Montelukast. Um, so those are symptom management. And then we have mast cell stabilizers. And that Um, we have a few of those chromalin, oral chromalin is a mast cell stabilizer. The wonderful thing about that one is it's very safe. We have no, no long-term bad side effects. It doesn't interact with other medications or supplements. Um, the hard part is you have to take it four times a day, but when that works for people, it's wonderful. And, um, and it's also used in inflammatory bowel disease and, and helping the gut. So yeah, uh, and that can often help people gain foods back, but it's while most of it stays in the gut, 99%, it does help with systemic mast cell symptoms. So that's that's a great one. Ketodafin uh, is a compounded mast cell stabilizer. And then quercetin is in a supplement. It's a natural bioflavonoid uh, found in some vegetable matter, plant products. And that's that's 
can be a good mast cell stabilizer too. And, um, and then if we can get people on mast cell stabilizers and doing well that way, we might be able to lower some of their other uh, antihistamines and stuff. And then we also have biologics like amalizumab, I can't say it, Zolaire, <laughs> I can't say the generic, um, that can help to stabilize mast cells because that's an IgE receptor blocker. So um, can also help prevent severe reactions such as anaphylaxis by working on that pathway. And there are many other biologics and tricks up our sleeve as far as medications go, depending on the patient. So again, very patient individualized. And um, there are even things like in Chinese medicine and um, different different uh, supplements that can be helpful and supportive. And then a big one that I'm a fan of too, is after I help get people more stable and less symptomatic, I love to bring in neural retraining because once people have a severe illness or just so many, so many triggers have been a, a problem and um, maybe certain things were causing severe reactions and now I've got them more stable. Um, people are often kind of stuck in that fight, flight, freeze state. And we need to bring in neural retraining to help calm down the nervous system and teach the, well, I've heard you talk about uh, the brain and gut or brain and body connection that we we want to heal the gut or we want to heal the body, but we also have to work on the brain and its role in this disease process. So I see a lot of amazing results when neural retraining is brought in as well. Yeah, no, I think just listening to what you've described here, this is clearly a condition where the brain gut dysfunction would need to be reset. And I think that's, I mean, just the options you just provide our listeners right there starting with antihistamines, going to more advanced therapies, stabilizers, and then really wrapping it up with neural retraining. That's a truly comprehensive way to approach this heightened mast cell response. I realized I skipped a big part though, if I could just say one more thing sure. um, about diagnosis specifically for systemic mastocytosis, because we were um, talking about mast cell disease in the broad sense too, but I didn't mention. So when systemic mastocytosis is suspected, another lab test that is really important and non-invasive, um, once we see that a tryptase level is high, especially, is we have available now um, a serum or blood uh, CKIT D816B mutation analysis, because that is the main uh, mutation in mast cells uh, for systemic mastocytosis. So that is available now at LabCorp ARUP, and I just heard that the Mayo lab had it uh, as a highly sensitive version now as well. Um, so that is just one tube of blood to really, in a non-invasive way, find out if somebody may have systemic mastocytosis when it's suspected. Um, and if that comes back positive, then a patient is sent for a bone marrow biopsy or more investigation. So that's specific to systemic mastocytosis. And then since you are a GI provider, um, mm -hmm. the GI biopsies are a wonderful place 
to look for those that we suspect systemic mastocytosis in. Um, but there is a lot of confusion out there. And when we get GI biopsies, it's not the number of mast cells found, because again, mast cells are involved in inflammation and many different disease processes. But in systemic mastocytosis, we're specifically looking if they clump up or form bands along the GI, excuse me, GI tract. Um, so we stain for CD117, and if we see bands or aggregates of mast cells, then we uh, stain for CD25 and look for um, those aberrant phenotypes of mast cells. So uh, I just want to mention that because I see a lot of confusion there in the GI field or when people come to me thinking they have mastocytosis because they have a lot of mast cells in one place, but they're not clumped up. So we have to investigate further to figure out what's going on. No, well, that's fantastic. I think that's very informative, especially because, yeah, you could see mast cells and you have all these symptoms. You may think that now you know, you have mast cell activation, but it really depends on the way they are, they're presenting even on the histologic specimen on, in the GI tract. Yeah. Aaron, this was truly, truly phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on here.